Come to uh, Romans chapter 9, and we were there the last time we were together looking at the first five verses, and this morning I wanted to focus our concentration mainly on Romans chapter 9, verses 6 to 12, uh, with a mention of what takes place in verse 13, Uh, but we'll also look at the next time we're in Romans together, we'll look at how 13 ties us to the next Uh, major section. So uh, this morning I wanted to uh, provide for us a look at verses 6 to 13. And the title that I've given to this sermon is a title that I believe the sermon has given to itself. It is, Who is God's Israel? Who is God's Israel? Uh, Because it is certain that that is what Paul is trying to answer. He's trying to answer, who is the true Israel? Who is the Israel Uh, to whom God will bestow blessings in the future. Who is the Israel that will absolve Paul the Apostle from the grief that he expresses in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 to 5? Who is the true Israel? Yet we see that we come to this question in Paul's grief, because in Paul's grief, he's not only grieving about a certain final judgment that will not be at some point Uh, A judgment relieved. He's grieving and yet he identifies something. And in his grieving, there is a little bit of hope. He identifies all the blessings and the gifts that Israel has rejected. But even in that rejection, there are two things that stand out for us in this passage. I want to give them to you. First, Paul's grief is not final. His grief is not final. Second, Not all Israel will be saved. So that actually relieves some of the uh, some of the grief, because if it were true that somehow all of Israel was supposed to be saved and you see this continual disobedience, this continual rejection, then the grief would certainly be final. To that second point, not only is it that not all Israel will be saved, but some of Israel will be saved, some of Israel will be saved. And so it brings us to the question that the question that I believe this section is determined to answer as written by Paul the Apostle. Who is Israel? Who is Israel? And then who is God's Israel? Because if there is no true Israel, then God's word has failed. However, we know as we look at this passage God's word has not failed because the passage actually says God's word has not failed. So Israel remains as they are by his merciful hand. There is a true Israel to consider. There is a Israel whom God will inevitably save according to the kindness and riches of his glory. His word hasn't failed. Israel remains. But There are a couple other questions that we have to ask that I believe that Romans chapter 9 all the way to 11 answer for us. Who are his people, Israel? Not just who is the nation, who are his people, Israel? Later in the passage, if you were to look down beyond this text, Paul will begin to deal with the time frame, the chronology, the schedule, the time in which, the timeline in which God will deal with this Israel again, specifically for their salvation. He gives you a timeline. He shows you when it will take place as we work our way 
through the coming chapters and through the context before us. But verse six itself, as we look at verse six, where it says, but it is not as though the word of God has failed for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Verse six is set against Paul's grief. And it is a blessing that that is so. Because after all that grieves him, the fact that his countrymen, his kingsmen, according to the flesh, will not obey after being given so much clear revelation and testimony from God in ages past. Yet God's word cannot fail. All that is left for Paul to stand on is the surety and certainty of God's word coming to pass for the Israel that God said would come to pass. Because, again, God's word cannot fail. That is how we define who the true Israel is. To explain exactly what it means, if we look at this passage, he he ties the ultimate success of God's word to listen to this, to the distinction of Israel. So he distinguishes Israel in particular from Israel as a whole. And he distinguishes them as a people according to the Abrahamic covenant. So he says, I am staking the success of God's word upon the promises that were made to Abraham, upon the Abrahamic covenant. And if you remember certain features about that covenant, it was a covenant stated very plainly in Genesis chapter 12, uh, all the way to 17 and explained as it is. And at various points in the new in the New Testament as well, all the way through the old, it's an unconditional covenant. By that, we mean that man cannot alter the terms of the covenant. Man doesn't in and of himself bring the covenant to pass. It is based and staked on the very name and nature of God to bring it to pass. A land, a people, a seed, and then an ultimate seed being Jesus the Christ. And he promises that. He promises that. So since his name is staked on it, should that promise fail, he is not God. But we know that he's God and we know that the promise will not fail. So Paul is saying the success of all the prophecies that belong to Israel related to their salvation and the testimony of God's word distinguishing the remnant from the whole is staked on the claims made in the Abrahamic covenant. He says specifically, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now, listen to this, because I'm going to read even further into seven. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Verse seven. Nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. He says, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. So now he's making a distinction and we'll talk about it a little more. He's making a a distinction between Isaac and Ishmael. Let me explain a couple of things, too, even just as we've gotten to this point. First, Israel as a nation and people has not been replaced by the church just because of their historic and persistent rejection. Because for one, at wholesale, their persistent disobedience and rejection is not final, neither is Paul's grief. So you have their rejection isn't final. And Paul's grief is not final. In fact, it's the opposite. 
The true Israel remains because of what Paul will demonstrate here through the lives of Jacob and Esau. It's because of God's electing love and his gracious and sovereign choice to preserve them. God says, I'm going to preserve the ones I intend to preserve. But to understand this plainly, God's redemptive plan in his word hasn't failed. Because listen to this. When we think about who is God's Israel, we look at this in this way. Just as salvation redeems, judgment eliminates. Just as salvation redeems, judgment eliminates. It's the same thing as you think about the New Testament, the nature of salvation in the New Testament. God's word hasn't failed simply because everyone in all the earth won't be saved. No. Redeeming love, the grace of God, the salvation, all the things that are true concerning salvation in his son. It gathers, it redeems, it restores what judgment also eliminates. Judgment eliminates people. It eliminates those who are rebellious, those who do not love God, those who boast in their flesh, those who are haters of God and the haters of good. Those who have not trusted in Christ alone for salvation. Judgment eliminates that means that God's word has ultimately succeeded because that is what judgment is supposed to do. I also want to make this claim as we look at the next two chapters, you have to understand something. And I really am speaking to what some may characterize as uh, as replacement theology, the idea that the church has replaced Israel effectively during the church age or the idea that somehow Israel is now conflated with the church. I want to tell you that that is a false ideology because first, God did not set out to preserve all of Israel in the first place. That was not a part of his redemptive plan. He did not set out to preserve all of Israel. Listen to this. If they remained in sin, there is no covenant that God has established with people in Israel if they were to remain in their sins, it wasn't just I'm choosing you because you're Israel. No, I will choose you and you will give evidence to that choice of election if you obey. And so the terms of salvation have not changed from one testament to the next. But as we understand this, as we understand this, he set out to preserve righteous Israel. That's the goal. It's not to preserve all of Israel. And then somehow God is caught off guard and the people didn't obey as he ought. So now we got to move on to the church and just blot Israel out. That's not what's happening. What's actually happening is he's preserving righteous Israel. And unrighteous Israel is going to be eliminated even if they think they're righteous based on descendancy from Abraham. But what Paul is setting out to accomplish is to understand that just because you say you belong to Abraham doesn't mean you belong to the promises of Abraham and Isaac, because that is where the Abrahamic covenant stands. You have to be a spiritual descendant and certainly a natural descendant, but a spiritual descendant of Isaac, of Isaac. And that is what Paul the apostle goes to. Because so many, even in the world today, can say that they can trace their posterity, their genealogy, back to Abraham. They can say that they can. 
But you have to have a spiritual descendancy, not only from Abraham, but through Isaac, through Isaac. And so that's what Paul is concerned with. God never sets out to preserve unrighteous people. He doesn't set out to preserve unrighteous people and to reconcile them uh, to himself apart from righteousness in his son. He does not set out to do that at no point in history. There is no covenant that exists with unrighteous, unrepentant people. It doesn't exist. What does exist are covenants for people who abide and remain in God's love. Who repent of their sins and trust in him. So we look at that and there are references to that. For example, what I'm saying is that there's a remnant. What I'm saying to you is that there's a remnant. And we reference here the account of Elijah against the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings, particularly chapter 19, verse 18, is where he begins to say that, look, God has preserved for himself a people. Romans 11:4. Paul talks about that account and explains that account. But I want to tell you something that guards any allegorical or misinterpretive reading of this particular chapter. There is a distinction to be made. But we have to consider that in this passage, what Paul is concerned with, especially in verse seven, when he says, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac, your descendants will be named. We must consider here that there's a distinction between natural Israel and spiritual Israel. But make no mistake, in Paul's comparison, listen to this. He is comparing and contrasting Israel to Israel. He's comparing and contrasting Israel to Israel. Israel here is not an allegory for the Gentiles. He's comparing and contrasting Israel to Israel. He's not bringing in the Gentiles here. He's not saying Israel are now to be considered in the spiritual sense Gentiles. No, he's saying spiritual Israel is the remnant that worked its way and survived by the preserving hand of God, by the electing hand of God through the Old Testament into the new, into the tribulation, into eternity. Israel to Israel. And the only distinction he's making so far is that Israel is set against the Israel as a nation, as a people who do not belong to the true Israel, who do not belong to God, who simply belong to the uh, belong to the nation, but they don't belong to the promises granted to the true nation. He's only comparing Israel to Israel. In fact, if you look at the text with me, you'll see the Gentiles don't appear from the vantage point of Paul's writing and his explanation until verses 24 and 26. And I'll read them for you. For he says, even us whom he also called. Okay, now the Gentiles show up. So we don't have to allegorically or metaphorically place them into a place where they're not mentioned yet. Because he does mention them. In verse 24 he says, even us who, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, here we go, but also from among Gentiles. Now he starts talking about the Gentiles. And he distinguishes Gentiles from Israel. 
And he, said, and he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who is not beloved, beloved. And look at this. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they shall be called the sons of the living God. Then look at verse 27, just for good measure. Isaiah cries out then concerning Israel. So you would think that Isaiah's cry would be, according to replacement theology or other concepts and features that try to strike against the preservation of the remnant, you would think Isaiah's cry would be, Lord, just replace them with your church. But that's not Isaiah's cry. Look at his cry. He cries out concerning Israel. Through, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea. Look at this. It is the remnant that will be Saved. He's talking about Israel. He's comparing and contrasting true remnant Israel to those who are saying that they belong to Israel, but they are not the true Israel. He does so also in Galatians. But yet even here, Paul is dealing with the fact that God has granted salvation toward the remnant. He's made no pact with unrighteous people, certainly not unrighteous Israel. Paul's grief is certainly toward those who will not receive the things and had not received the things related to blessings and promises due to their rebellion and disobedience. But it is the remnant. And this has been the case all the way throughout the Old Testament, all the way to the new until the end of the age. I'll explain what I mean by remnant because it shows up everywhere in the Old Testament. The remnant are the few among the many. They're the few among the many. I mean, that would be a simple idea as to when we say the word remnant, to whom are we referring? They are the few among the many. For in every generation, God has his true Jews. He has his true Israel, whom he preserves. It may be unbeknownst to you and I at times, but God knows. God knows who they are. And God preserves them in the same way that he preserves you and I from faith to faith. To the very end of our lives in him as we live for him. But listen, the terms don't change because because some might accuse what I'm saying of, okay, well, God had a different salvation scheme. then. No, the terms don't change. The just shall live by faith. That has always been the case. And even more, we'll double down here. It's not because of anything they have done. The prophet Ezekiel talks about that. They haven't done anything to earn what God has given them. Nothing at all. Paul will later explain when it is that God will deal with the remnant specifically. Paul raises the stakes. He says, I'm going to tell you when I'll tell you when God will begin to deal with this remnant, because at that time, you'll know who they are. But more specifically, back to our text, it must be said that what Paul is doing here is he is comparing Israel to Israel. We could see that even by simple word study, by understanding that there is certainly a different word for Gentiles than there are of Israel. And whenever Paul talks in allegorical language, as he did in other passages, even in uh, even as we've studied them, he tells you that that's what he's doing. It's called permissible allegory. He tells you I'm about to speak an allegory and then I'm about to explain the allegory. 
He doesn't leave anything undone because that's not how the divine author works. He's not here to confuse us. He's here to bring great clarity upon the scriptures. So Paul compares Israel to Israel. And then he's even more specific. He essentially deals with who are Abraham's true descendants from God? Who are Abraham's true descendants whom God will ultimately save among Israel? Who are the true descendants? And they're the true descendants because they are the true Israel. Well, he says it is through Isaac. It is through Isaac. If you remember when between Ishmael and Isaac, you have the Abrahamic blessing granted to Isaac and his posterity, his people. That's who the Abrahamic blessing is toward. It's toward his line, his generation. And the terms of the Abrahamic covenant are the blessings of this a land, a people, and a vast seed, an innumerable seed, a multitude of persons coming off the heels of a people in the land in the plains of Shinar and the Tower of Babel, trying to make their own names great, trying to make a name for themselves. God not only confounds them, he not only judges them, but he turns to Abraham and says, I'm going to make for you and your nation a great name and you won't do it yourself. I'm going to preserve you to accomplish it. Against that very act of judgment. The Babylon. So you see. The blessing. Eventually. Eventually culminates in the ultimate seed. Springing forth to be the king of kings. And the eternal Messiah. Who will rule over the nations. Namely the Lord Jesus the Christ. But listen to this. The Abrahamic covenant is not like. The modern movements of today. Let me explain this. The Abrahamic covenant was not on the basis of some relational status or some nepotism. You know, you're my brother, you're my sister. I'm going to hire you to do a task. No, it's not any of those things. And those things are all prevalent in the spiritual movements today that are calling themselves even at times the church. This is a covenant. This is the ones who belong to the covenant had to possess Abraham's faith. And God has staked it on the very uh, on the very claims of his perfections, his nature and on the claims of his own name, Yahweh. And so he's saying, if I don't bring this to pass, if I don't bring this to pass, I am not God. If I don't bring this to pass, I'm not God. You can't trust my name and you can't trust my nature. If I don't if I don't save remnant Israel and deliver on the features of this covenant, I cannot be trusted as God over all things. That is how high the stakes are. And if Abraham were no longer the one, we look at Abraham, we work through Isaac. If Abraham breached the covenant, then he was to be mutilated, as so were the animals that were representative and symbolic of the act of binding the covenant. But I also want to tell you, Jesus is working along the same way because Jesus is the Christ. He's the perfect revelation and his on his lips are perfect truth and righteousness embodied in his person. Perfect truth and righteousness personified. I say all that because if you remember his rebuke of the Pharisees, it was along the same lines as I'm saying now. It was in John 8 when they questioned and attacked him for demonstrating that he is indeed God in human flesh. But also their major attack was that he was the son of Abraham, son of David, because they believed they were the spiritual sons of Abraham. 
And Jesus is saying, no, you're actually the seed of the serpent. So you see it here. The true descendants of Abraham are not to be viewed simply on a national scope. They're not just a national people. We're not talking about national governments or international governments. We're not talking about other religions such as the false teachings of Islam, which claim that they have a spiritual ancestry because they do, in fact, genealogically belong to Abraham. But no, there were no promises of all the promised features of the Abraham covenants through Ishmael, who is their father. There, there were no promises such as that. In fact, many of the blessings and promises were temporal in nature, geographical in nature, preserving in nature. But they were not spiritual blessings. They would have to turn aside from Ishmael and then begin to turn to the uh, promises given to Isaac, namely fall before the ultimate seed, Jesus Christ, and repent of their sins and trust in him alone. But I will also tell you very plainly. This is why we do not conflate the name Yahweh with any other name. It all ties into the Abrahamic covenant. And what God is saying, I'm going to accomplish for my remnant. If you change his name, if we say, well, God's name can be changed to Allah. God's name can be changed to whatever name. It can be changed to whatever we want it to be. If you make that claim, you strike against the salvation of the remnant. You strike against the Abrahamic covenant. You strike against the permanence of these things. And so it's important to understand that all of this salvation speak is conflated with his name. It's conflated with his name and his name is conflated with his nature because he said, that's how I want to be known through this covenant for all generations. His name and his works tied together and bound together as Yahweh, as Yahweh. And so we're not looking at this. I say this because we're not looking at it at a national scope. It's not you and I get to pick whatever vernacular and change terms and change names and change actions. We don't get to do that because it is tied to his name. It's tied to his works. And we're looking at this in a very spiritual sense. But listen, the persistent disobedience of Israel toward the Messiah and toward God the Father, they're not final. They're not final. As Paul shows, God's preserving mercy according to the unconditional features of the Abrahamic covenant, where it is God making Abraham's name great because Abraham demonstrated faith. So now God's name is going to be great. Well, we have to settle upon that his name is who he is. And it's also uh, it's also conflated with his perfections. Verse eight distinctions that is it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God he made no covenant with the children of the flesh among Israel he made no covenant he makes no covenant related to his new covenant with children of the flesh and the new covenant sure men and institutions may make covenants with children of the flesh but God's covenant does not extend to children of the flesh it extends to children of God why well it's, he says it here but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. Those are the true descendants. The ones who are children of the promise. Not just children according to genealogy. According to where I reside in the nation. The true nation are those who are children of the promise. That is what Paul is saying. 
Those who have actually received, listen to this, those who have received all the blessings that Paul was grieving over and he mentioned in Romans chapter 9, verses 4 to 5. And I should say it this way. I should put it future. Those who will receive those blessings. If you look at verses 4 and 5, all the things that Paul weeps over, the true remnant will receive those blessings. They will be theirs and they will receive them readily and they will kiss the sun. What he's saying is there will come a generation who receives what Paul is grieved over. They'll receive it. And he spends the next two chapters explaining that in full detail. He explains it all in full detail. We know Paul is dealing with comparing Israel to Israel because he goes to an Old Testament historical event in Scripture. He doesn't jump into uh, some New Testament example. Instead, he goes to the Old Testament. He says, let me help you understand who the true Israel is by helping you understand an Old Testament event that deals with Israel. Specifically, he deals with the account in Genesis 25 related to the birth of Jacob and Esau. It says, and not only this, but there was Rebekah also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, he's speaking in the spiritual sense, our father Isaac. Can't call Isaac your father if you're not a, ch- a child of the promise. Our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, Listen to this so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand not because of work of works, but because of him who calls. So much can be said about the account related to Jacob and Esau. And I had even thought to maybe, wow, let's go into Genesis 25 and look at it by way of a sermon. And perhaps we will. But. Of all that could be said, I'll tell you what Paul wants to emphasize, as you are probably familiar with that account of Jacob and Esau. What he's interested in emphasizing is how you see the clear hand of God in the preservation of his electing love, his saving grace by divine election toward the nation through his own divine will. Let me repeat that. You see in that account the clear hand of God in the preservation of his electing love. He preserves his own election and makes it very plain you're not choosing I am. Electing love toward the nation through his own divine will, through his own divine will. So you see, I'll put it very simply to you. You see here, if you were to look in Genesis 25 as Paul summarizes it, when you read that account in scripture, you see it wasn't Isaac it wasn't Rebecca. It certainly wasn't Jacob. It wasn't Esau who really chose anything for themselves. It was all God. He did it. And if you look at that account, you'll know something. And we have to mention it because it's there. The Bible doesn't hide it. We know that there's plenty of human deception involved in the account. Plenty of human deception. But even with that, God is not responsible for the deception. He's not responsible the deception. He simply, as he always does by the power of his own hand, he overcomes all wickedness. That's what purpose is when Paul is rehashing it. He overcomes all wickedness to bring about the result of his divine election and salvation, according to denoting standard, the purpose of his own choice. 
When God wants counsel on how to act, he consults himself and he acts perfectly. No need for contingencies. No need to figure it out. He's not caught off guard by Jacob's lying. He's not caught off guard by the double crossing and the deception involved in the account. His simple task is this. I'm going to bless as I said I would according to the Abrahamic covenant. And men's actions will not thwart that. But I'll say this. Human actions, especially sin, they do have consequences. But none of them override the purpose of God. They have consequences, but they don't override the purposes of God. So when you come up with a certain replacement theology, you're trying to say that some here, uh, some need to hear me here. And somehow you need to understand that uh, God failed on some level. So now we got to come up with a contingency plan. We got to help God. And let's come up with a plan that says, okay, the church is here. We can see the church. Can't really see the remnant as we want to. So let's just say that since, you know, maybe maybe God didn't figure something out. Maybe he missed something. Let's just say that the church is now Israel. But that's not what we need to do because actually God's purpose did stand. Because just because humans sin and their sins have consequences doesn't mean that God's plan, his covenant, needs to be overridden by men. In fact, you see, God in this salvation, in the election of his true people Israel, God works his salvation plan through the Abrahamic covenant just as he promised. Let me just give you the encouragement of context here. The Romans needed to hear this. Because they were being at this point now pursued by both worldly Gentiles and worldly Jews, worldly Jews who were saying we belong to Abraham. They needed to see not only this distinction, but the encouragement that the Abrahamic promise, it's going to be accomplished. Don't let these people who are saying they're Jews strike you for true Israel. I would encourage your heart the same way if you're being afflicted by people who are demonstrating the fruit of unbelief and saying they're Christians. Don't let their false claim of Christianity thwart you from the new covenant promises. Just because people are running you down and saying they're Christians and acting in a way that has nothing to do with Christ doesn't mean they're Christian. We know very clear parameters of who is a Christian. In the same way Paul is trying to, within the Jew-Gentile dynamic of the early church, trying to establish for the people of Israel. Don't be discouraged. God is not. I'm grieving. I grieve, but don't be discouraged. My grieving isn't final. That is essentially what Paul is trying to show them. Well, it's not final because Paul is not responsible for the salvation of the people as a direct cause. It's God. God will bring it to pass. Remember, Paul couldn't even sever himself from grace to bring them in. God has already sent this son on behalf of the elect among the people of Israel, the true nation. But look at this. Lastly, we come to this point in verses 12 to 13. You do see the consequence of all the events in Genesis 25. You see them, and Paul talks about them. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. So Paul is essentially summarizing a very large account by just taking certain excerpts from it and beginning to explain and emphasize. it. And then in 13, just as it is written, Jacob, I love, but Esau, I hated. Hated? Yes, hated. And look at this. You do see the consequence of all the events in Genesis 25, but the outcome is God's alone. 
That's the outcome. The outcome is God's alone because he does what he pleases and his word does not fail. And his word doesn't fail because he is tied to his word. He cannot fail. Esau and his posterity, by posterity I mean people, Esau and his posterity would serve Jacob. And his, as the blessing of, uh, he would serve Jacob and his posterity as the blessing of Isaac, uh, as, as Isaac uh, dictating that blessing to Jacob. But listen, let me make this very plain because I know that there are movements out there uh, who would nullify the blessing through Isaac down through Jacob because of the deception involved. Listen to this. Jacob's deception does not nullify the blessing for his posterity because Jacob is not our Messiah. So his deception does not nullify the blessing for his posterity. Jacob is not the ultimate seed. Jesus the Christ is. And Jesus is the embodiment of truth. We find in him perfection. We need not hide this account nor say, well, was it really deception? Do we have to consider it to be deception? It was deception. But God wasn't the deceiver. Jacob was. God simply blessed whom he said he would. And it was God's choice to do so without being implicated in any deception. Why? Because God is arriving at the perfect Messiah who will not deal in deception. He will deal in perfect righteousness. But his deception does not nullify the blessing because God's covenant with, let's rewind, his covenant with Abraham stands. Because it's unconditional. Jacob can't absolve the posterity from the covenant. It's unconditional. It's based on God's name. Remember the sequence of events. As we close, I remind you of verse 11. Look at this. Remember the sequence of events. For though the twins were not yet born, they weren't born yet and had not done anything good or bad. So that God, listen, there's a purpose of why God acted when he did and how he did. So that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Listen to this. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. So we can't point to Jacob and say, man, want to be like Jacob in his deception or wow, Esau deserved X, Y and Z. No, no, no. God, God brought it to pass as he did. And it was God's electing choice to do it as he did it. And God is, is absolved through all guilt because his promise was to Abraham. But what you do see is God's power over the will. You see God's power over sinful man doing sinful things to try to expedite God's plan. You see it all the time. You see it even today. The pragmatism will not stand and God will not be judged as guilty because of man's pragmatism. Instead, he will bring his covenant promises to pass. Lastly, verse 13, it says what it says, and we'll join it to the next time we're together. But it says, just as it is written, not only does he says the older will serve the younger, which is unheard of in that culture, uh, in the ancient Near East culture. It's unheard of. But not only that, just as it is, it is written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. Well, when we look at verse 13, we'll explain some things. 
But we will explore in its context next time this. It's certain that when we look at these last few verses, 11 to 13, God eliminates all of today's talk related to the atonement of potentiality, hypotheticals, or this attempt from postmodern man to treat God as some benevolent God, uh, grandfather in the sky. He eliminates all that. Paul will explain that just as God loves according to the counsel of his own will and his mercy, he also hates according to the same counsel of his will, according to the righteousness of his wrath. God does hate and his hate is an abiding perfect hate, just as his love is an abiding perfect love. Paul talks about that. We will not hide from that because that is exactly what the text says, that God indeed hates. And yet even his righteous hatred works toward the end goal of establishing his covenant. It eliminates potentiality and hypotheticals because it doesn't say, well, Esau has a chance here. It says, no, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated even down to his posterity. You will see God act out in wrath against Esau. And why? Why would God do this? Why is God like this? You know what Paul says? He acts according to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't need to hear your questions concerning why. It's who he is. It's how he answered Job. Who are you, old man, to talk back to God? I made you. I do as I please. And that is a satisfactory answer if we abide in God's will. Uh, but having said that, next time we will certainly look at verse 13 and beyond. Let's pray.